Hope everybody's doing well. Everybody doing okay? All right. Didn't sound very convincing, but I'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm all right. Well, here's what we're going to be doing today. We just finished the series on uh, what, is it, what does it mean to be human? And coming off that series, one of the things that I'm very excited about is we're going to be diving into the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, if you've never studied 2 Corinthians before, even if you have, some of you might be sitting there, why in the world would we be studying such an obscure book that nobody ever teaches or wants to go into? And I think the main reason is this. As we go through the book of 2 Corinthians, what you're going to learn is they are us and we are them in so many ways. I think one of the two books that the church in the United States should study diligently to understand what God wants to do in our lives is both First and Second Corinthians. So a couple years ago, we, uh, we took a journey through the book of First Corinthians. We won't take that long this time, just so you know. But we are going to spend a few months just looking at this book. And in a lot of ways, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take us kind of on a journey through the book of Second Corinthians. We're going to get on a bus together, kind of our tour bus, and we're going to go through, and I'm going to be pointing out different things along the way because I want you to understand this book, at least from a highlight level, so that we begin to dive into it, you're going to have an idea of what it is that you need to see because over the next few weeks, then, what we're going to do in months is we're going to get off the tour bus and we're going to dive in and get our hands deep into this book and really begin to understand not only that they are us and we are them, but more importantly, I think we're going to see how God transforms lives. And I want to see my life transformed and I want to see your life transformed. And so that's why I'm really excited to get into this book. But where we're going to start today is with a guy named Epicurus. Now, if you don't know Epicurus, that's okay. But he's a guy that was alive about three, around 300 BC. Now, in the back of your head, you're probably wondering, what in the world does Epicurus have to do with the Corinthians? Well, who Epicurus was is that he was a man that was a philosopher within Athens specifically. And he started a movement called the Epicureans, hence the name. Now, for Epicurus, for him, the whole goal, and you'll kind of see it on the slides behind me, was that he and others, what they were trying to obtain was happiness. Sound familiar? They are us, and we are them. Now, the happiness that they were trying to do was wrapped around this idea of the tranquil life. They were trying to be this group of people that at all costs, they were trying to avoid pain. They are us, and we are them. He valued pleasure above all things because even nature taught, and this is the way he believed it, that the chief good is to find this life that is free of pain, and the chief evil is to actually experience pain. That's where he was at. The goal of Epicureanism, kind of like I said, was to get to this point of what's called tranquility. Doesn't that sound nice? It wasn't a pleasure kind of like what we tend to think of, like hedonism, where somehow we're trying to get and suck pleasures out of life no matter what they are, because they even realized that even somebody that pursued sex in too great of a way, that was actually unhealthy. And if one drank too much, they were going to have a hangover the next day. So they began to have specifically this idea of approaching life wisely in moderation. In other words, they are us and we're them. The moderation was the key specifically, and you'll see this, to wisdom. They lived by this code specifically in this wisdom that they were going to be self-sufficient. They were going to have friends in their life, but they didn't want their friends in any way to be dependent upon them, and they didn't want to be dependent upon their friends. They wanted to be absolutely self-sufficient because, in many ways, they are us and we're them. 
Not only did they see from that vantage point, but their whole goal, like I said, was moderation. So the, they would seek to control their passions, and one was able to somehow, by controlling their passions, to be able to avoid any pain of any kind. And this occurred, again, by striving for this self-sufficiency. They were going to overcome things. They were going to grab things by the bootstraps and make life kind of bend to themselves. One of the things that I thought was interesting about it, which Paul connects to in 1 Corinthians 7, is Actually, Epicurus thought people shouldn't get married. Why shouldn't they get married? Because there is pain in marriage. I mean, not mine, but, you know, yours. (laughs) Religion for him was something that was pragmatic. It was something that they were inviting the gods along into their life. And inviting the gods along into their life, it wasn't so much that they were going to bend to the gods, but the gods were going to bend to them. In other words, the gods were there merely to observe, and their whole goal in life was to be happy. He felt the gods lived in perfect pleasure, or even in some ways they didn't even exist at all. And for sure what he believed is, is that there was no supreme God, so everybody was supposed to make the life of their own. You can see it in this quote. This is what he says. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able or willing? Then why call him God? In other words, make your own life. They are us, and we're them. One of the greatest pains that they sought to overcome was this idea of death. To them, in an interesting way, if they could just kind of explain it away, and you can see in these quotes, one of the ways that they tried to explain away death is that at the end of life, there is no afterlife. There's nothing after. This life is all there is. So therefore, enjoy the pleasures of this life because when you die, you enter into non-existence. So therefore, you don't have to worry about life at all. Just kind of go through. When you die, there is nothingness. And that's why I think Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. They are us. And we're them. Now, in a lot of ways, what happened to this group of people is they kind of began to wane over a few years. And this group called the Stoics came in. And the Stoics began to kind of supplant them as the greater philosophers at this time within Athens. And in some ways, this movement almost kind of seemed to ebb away. That wasn't until the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire grabbed that idea of Epicureanism and began to supplant it into the DNA of who they were. This guy named Seneca, who was probably one of the chief Stoics at that time, even acknowledged this. He, he realized that while he felt his philosophical system was the best, that this particular system, Epicureanism, had supplanted itself into the Roman way of life. And so therefore, wherever the Roman Empire went, it went along with them. This idea of seeking pleasure in moderation, because that's all that there is. They are us, and we're them. Now, again, you're probably wondering, well, how does this connect at all to the Corinthians? Well, in 146 BC, this guy named Lucius Mummius, he came in to this particular area, and the Corinthians, who were part of this group called the Aegean League, decided they were going to fight back against the Roman Empire, and they got squashed. They literally laid waste to the city. Corinth was absolute rubble. And by the time the Romans had left, hardly any people existed anymore. And for about 100 years until 46 BC, that whole place laid absolutely dormant with nobody there. That was until Julius Caesar looked at that particular place and thought, ah, 
In order for my empire to be great, in order for me to have military routes and trade routes, there's something very key about this Corinth place. And he came in and began to rebuild it. And he took Roman officers and soldiers and freedmen and encouraged them by giving them land to move into there to start a whole new life. Now, what he realized, and here's a map of it, you can kind of see Corinth in the very middle of everything there. It's on what's called the Isthmus of Corinth. You can see that little kind of stream of land that's in there. The thing that's to the left of it, in my, my view, was called the Peloponnesus. Now, what used to happen at that particular time is that when they would bring boats to that point, they would have to sail an extra 250 miles around the Peloponnesus. In fact, sailors, though, used to say, because this, this travel was so arduous and dangerous, that before you travel around the Peloponnesus, uh, excuse me, let me say that again, Peloponnesus, you need to write your will. And what they learned is on that little isthmus, they could cross boats across it or even get animals to begin to bear it across there. Julius Caesar was brilliant. In fact, within 100 years after he had settled things, Corinth grew to the size of about a quarter of a million people. Just think about that. In 100 years, it went from almost nobody to a quarter of a million people. The way that I was thinking about it this week, it went, if you can remember San Francisco back in the gold rush days, it went from this little dot on a map to this grand city overnight, and all the things that came along with it were hitting Corinth in the same way. Now, today is just this little dot on the map. It's a little tiny town, but this city was strategic, and it began to boom now, into Corinth, what started to happen is you had this strange mix of consumerism because money started to flow in there. And you know that when money starts to flow in there, and not only that, but this idea now when Rome came in, the good life, and we've been talking about that for the last six weeks, the good life came in with it through Epicureanism, and all of a sudden it collided together, and the forces that came together put this DNA inside of Corinth, and everything about Corinth became two things. It was economics and Epicureanism, or I want the good life. They are us, and we're them. Corinth proudly, what they did is they worshipped wealth. They worshipped accomplishments. They worshipped possessions. They, they worshipped where one lived, the particular neighborhood that they were a part of. In so many ways, this city became not so much an aristocracy of like birth, you know, not birth that made you powerful, but the more that you could earn money, the more that you could show yourself to be a powerful man and getting prestige and power, that was the aristocracy. That was the way that they ruled their culture. Into it, along with this Epicureanism, came rugged individualism where a person is totally self-sufficient. They're independent. They don't need any assistance whatsoever in their life. It became the ideal. It was a live and let live society where you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and that was how you would make culture. Why? Because they were us and we're them. It became a culture of self-promotion. To make it to the top, you promoted yourself, and those that made it were lauded, even if they did it in any kind of an underhanded way. Why? Because they are us, and we're them. Now, some of you are sitting out there because you've heard Corinthians talk, talk before, and you're like, when's he going to talk about the rampant sexual deviancy within that city? Well, one of the things that we know about this particular town, and it's rampant in so many sermons that I listen to, 
is that at one time it used to be the kind of the mecca of people going to experience sexual experiences at the temple of Aphrodite. But now it was a Roman colony. And that generation had died off and people didn't exist anymore. Instead, now it became this Roman city. The real God was money and honor and power and tranquility. Everything became about that. And you know this, where there's wealth and power, people will come to forge a living. And Corinth was a great spot for those that were seeking to build their life, to start from the bottom, to climb the societal ladder. Everything was moving this way. In fact, anybody that moved backwards on this social ladder, anybody that in any way experienced a financial hardship or a social hardship, their prestige was brought down in any way. It was embarrassing, and they looked upon those people as a social pariah. If you weren't making it in some kind of a way, in their particular eyes, you were a nobody. Along with that came the rebuilding of not only the city, but anytime people have time on their hands after they've made some money, they want some pleasure. Corinth became one of the sports capitals of the world. In fact, this particular picture is from the Temple of Poseidon, where they would come in and they would have what was called the Ismian Games. It happened every two years in the spring, and people would come in all over the world to compete in different things. They would compete as a festival in athletics and music and speech competitions, all to honor the sea god Poseidon. Sports was something that they idealistically looked upon. Drama was something that they also looked upon because they began to have acting. They built this giant amphitheater just outside of Corinth, and it was one of the largest at the time. Now, here's the number. You ready for this? It would seat 14,000 people. They were us, and we're them. They lauded great athletes. They lauded great communicators. They lauded great actors. They lauded great musicians. Those people kind of became the gods of sorts within their culture to entertain and allow the masses to kind of escape from reality for just a little bit of time. They, they needed some tranquility. And so what they did is they found people to entertain them so that they didn't have to deal with real life. Kids from the very youngest of ages, especially within the poorer classes, learned that if I'm going to climb that social ladder, I'm going to climb that social ladder either by sports or I'm going to climb it by music or I'm going to climb it by acting. I'm going to climb it by being a phenomenal communicator. And everything in which they did would shape their lives, even at great personal cost to themselves, even injury or death. Why? Because in a lot of ways, they are us and we're them. A hundred years when Paul arrived it became a massive melting pot. People came from the Near East. People came from North Africa. People came from Rome, from all over the world, and they landed into this middle-class city. About 5% were the elite, and about 33% were slaves, people that were looked down upon. And everyone else in the middle, which is about 62%, were the middle class. And there was this way in which they could move up in the middle class. Why? In a lot of ways, because they are us and we're them. As they came in, they brought religions of all kinds. It was the ultimate pluralistic society. But in order for their religion to come into this particular culture, they had to shape it. It had to fit their economics, and it had to fit their Epicureanism. It had to come in in such a way that if you were a Near Eastern religion, if you were a cult, even Judaism, if you were even one of the Roman or Greek gods, you would have to fit the philosophical spirit of the city because all those things were merely just ways pragmatically for me to continue to climb the ladder of success. Why? 
Because they're us and we're them. It was to just live and let live society, deal with your own thing. What's right is for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. And everything will be fine unless you impinge on me. Don't mess with my tranquility. Why? Because they are us and we're them. Now, anybody that's talked about or studied the Apostle Paul long knows Paul was not afraid to mess up people's tranquility. Every city this guy went into, it was almost like a snow globe, wasn't it? He would come in, man, it was Ephesus, Thessalonica, I mean, just everything, and people were uproared about what would happen. When Paul entered, you know that he came in and he got after them tranquility, and you're like, oh, Paul, why are you messing up their tranquility? Who wouldn't want the good life, Paul? Because for the last six weeks, we've been learning and we've spent time talking about humanity and our desire for the good life. And our rebellion against God has caused us to create the good life apart from him. And Paul would have nothing to do with that. He knew that the only good life that was offered was found in Jesus. And so he, he would come in. He would see the idols. He would see the philosophies and the religion. And his heart would break for those people as they pursued after this good life that was so devoid of God and what he was seeking to do in his intent for humanity. And Paul would come in and he would boldly land into a city. But so often, Paul didn't fit. I'm going to show you a video from the Bible Project to kind of let you see how Paul didn't fit in 2 Corinthians. So could you play that for me? I think. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called 2nd or 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most, but not all of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since this painful visit and he makes clear he's forgiven them. He wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor. He earned a meager living through manual labor. He was under constant persecution and suffering. He was often homeless. And to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul. They were actually ashamed of him. 
So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders simply because of their wealth and eloquence is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to the recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials, and this is ridiculous to Paul. Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it, and so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, saying that God's Spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need any more proof than that. Now, the mention of the new covenant, it leads Paul into a long comparison between the old covenant between God and Israel that was mediated by Moses and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. The old covenant made at Mount Sinai, it was truly glorious. It made Moses himself shine with God's glory, but that glory eventually faded, not to mention the fact that the laws of that covenant were ineffective at truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, is even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it's his spirit that's now transforming people to become more faithful just like Jesus himself. Now this all sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't want to share in God's own glory? But Paul goes on to show how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God, but the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life, and Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. So although his apostolic career has been marked by humility, suffering, by poverty, it was all to serve the Corinthians. And so when they disapprove of Paul's poverty and suffering, they disapprove of Jesus too. Paul's way of life and leadership is actually the proof that he authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus. Paul really wants to reconcile with the Corinthians, but he won't let things lie until they've been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. After this passionate appeal, Paul moves on to address the topic of forgotten generosity. So the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they had fallen into poverty due to a famine. And Paul was raising money among the new churches that he started, full of mostly non-Jews. They would all send a relief gift as a symbol of their unity in the Messiah, Jesus. And so many of his churches, they were thrilled to give. But the Corinthians, in the midst of all this conflict with Paul, hadn't saved up for the gift. And for Paul, this isn't just about money. It's another sign that the Corinthians have not been transformed by the gospel about Jesus, which at its heart is a story of generosity. Paul says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's telling the story of the gospel through financial metaphors. Jesus gave up his glorious honor 
or wealth, and he lowered himself to die like a poor slave so that other people who are impoverished through sin and death can be exalted and become wealthy through the riches of God's grace. To be a Christian is to let this story sink deep into your mind and heart, letting it transform you into someone who's more generous, more willing to share your life and resources to help others. In the final section of the letter, Paul focuses on the main source of his conflict with the Corinthians, that group of impressive leaders that he sarcastically calls super apostles. So they came to Corinth promoting themselves and bad-mouthing Paul as a poor, unsuccessful leader. And at the risk of sounding self-promoting, Paul says, do these guys really want to compare credentials? he can totally take them on. Are they Jewish Bible experts? Well, so is Paul. He was a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. He has the whole Bible memorized. Do they want to brag about their superior knowledge of Jesus? Paul has actually seen and hung out with the risen Jesus. He's actually had visions of Jesus' heavenly throne room. But more importantly, Paul has given his entire life to the mission of Jesus. He sacrificed comfort and stability, and he never asked the Corinthians for money. Unlike the super apostles who charged a lot, Paul earned his own living. But, Paul says, he refuses to brag about these accomplishments because these aren't the things that really matter as a Christian. Instead, what he'll brag about is how flawed and how weak he is because it's in those inadequacies that he discovers the love and mercy of Jesus. Or as Jesus once told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect through weakness. Paul concludes the letter with a sober warning to the Corinthians. They need to check themselves. Their contempt for Paul, his way of life, their love for these super apostles, it all shows that they don't grasp who Jesus is on a fundamental level. They're not living like transformed followers of Jesus, and so he invites them once again to humble themselves before the love of Jesus. 2 Corinthians gives us a really unique window into the life of Paul and the paradox set before us by the cross of Jesus. The cross challenges our values, our ways of seeing the world. We value success, education, wealth, but God values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through the suffering, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross also unleashes the transforming power and presence of the Spirit to empower Jesus' followers to take up his cruciform way of life and make it their own. And that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. I hope you caught a term in there, the cruciform way of life. In so many ways, they lived the Corinthian way of life. Now, I think a church like Cornerstone and I love Cornerstone. In so many ways, we embody so much of what the cruciform life is like. I don't think I've ever been at a church that's more generous than this church. I don't think I've ever been at a church that serves more than this church. But I don't think sometimes, though, we stop long enough to ask the question, and maybe let's take it out, and we not put Corinth in there. Is the Simi Valley way of life more in my life than the cruciform way of life? See, Paul was a man that understood this. At one time, he was a guy that was seeking the good life outside of God. When he was captured by Jesus, he finally learned what the good life actually was. And if you remember right, at that particular point, Jesus absolutely disrupted his life. Not only did it disrupt his life, but you know this, everywhere that Jesus went, just think about the Gospels. Jesus absolutely disrupted the life. You, you can just see the Pharisees going, hey, dude, like back off. I need for you not to disrupt what we got going on here. And Jesus comes in and again, snow globe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Paul saw this, and this was the mark of Jesus. Jesus was one of these people, and we learned this when we were teaching through the book of Hebrews. He was a guy who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of his suffering and death. And you know this. The Jewish people couldn't wrap their minds around that. No, our king has come to conquer the Romans and create this empire. How in the world could this suffering servant have come along? And part of it is they didn't see it in Isaiah. So that by the grace of God, look at this, he might taste death for everyone. See, to seek the good life outside of God, the problem with that is it's rebellion and the consequences becomes, we become slavery to it. And in slavery to it, then the Bible promises that the outcome is death. And Jesus Christ came and he died the death that we should have died. And in our place took that to give us life. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, let me just speak really honestly and boldly to you. You might be seeking the good life, but in your seeking the good life, even if you don't think you're in rebellion against God, anybody that seeks the good life outside of God is in rebellion, and the only outcome of that is death. Not just physical death, but forever death. Paul made this his life. He began to shape everything about who he was, this Jesus lowering himself to rescue humanity. It was so contrary to Paul to come in and walk this way of life, this cruciform way of life, that in their heads they couldn't understand how could suffering and hardship be the good life? Who would lower themselves and move backwards? That made no sense. It was absolutely paradoxical, as they talked about in the video. But Paul knew, not only for himself, but for people to flourish, and we talked about this inside of the Manhood and the Womanhood series, people would need to be transformed. And this is where I think they are us and we are them. In so many ways, people that don't need God, that are self-made people, don't need transformation. They don't need the promise of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. They just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and become the me that I envision, the best me now. But Paul knew as a Pharisee that he had sought to accomplish this on his own, and he could never achieve it. And he knew that he needed the work of God in his life. He needed the, that Christ would need to change him. God would have to do in him the transformation because Paul, as hard as he tried to be the Jew of all Jews, could never in any way fit that sociological category, that biblical category like he wanted, even though he tried with everything he could. People cannot transform themselves because people are corrupted. Paul in Romans says we're corrupted from the top of our head to the bottom of our toes. And the only way that people can ever become the people God intended when he created humanity is through the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul takes that sledgehammer and comes into 2 Corinthians and wrecks everybody's world. I think the other thing we're going to learn is this idea of suffering that the Corinthians were trying so hard to avoid. I even was examining my own life. Have you ever noticed how much in your own life you try to avoid suffering? Especially now that I'm still at the young, ripe age of 46. They were looking down upon Paul from this. But Paul saw in something, suffering something so different. 
Going back to Hebrews again with Jesus, Jesus, even God, where God used this in the life of Jesus when it says it was fitting that he who, from whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, look at this, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, let's go back and kind of get what that was and learning it. But the idea is, is this is the cruciform way of Jesus. This is the path that's being asked to be walked. And Paul was not afraid to look at everybody. And so therefore, I'm not going to be afraid to look at us as a church and even in my own life and realize that the cruciform life is not just for apostles. The cruciform life is not just for super spiritual Christians. The cruciform life is for everybody. Paul said, when he was writing to them, he said, I even went through this three times. He said, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, watch this, those that walk through suffering, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why, Paul? For when I am weak, then I am strong. We spend our whole life trying not to be weak. We spend our whole life trying not to look weak. And here comes Paul with this paradoxical thought. That's not who we are. We are human. We are weak. We are desperate for God. He saw something so much greater for the Corinthians. Again, I think Cornerstone is a wonderful church, but in my own life and in y'all's life, I think Paul would be looking at us and saying, I think there's something so much greater that God has called us to be. He compares them in some ways to these ambassadors that are called by God to, to be these ones who proclaim to the world, to show them through our transformed lives, this is what the power of God can do in me. He even called them a temple. He says, we're this temple of the living God. And what do these temples have to do with idols? Don't be like them anymore. God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I love this. And I will be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me. Says the Lord Almighty, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. The Corinthians didn't mean to, and we don't mean to, but we bring this baggage in with us. So much of this world, we don't want it to, but it just sticks to us. And this is the very thing that God is looking to take care of in our lives. Now, why would anyone do this? You ever thought that? Why would anyone walk down this path? Why would anybody in their right mind choose to go down suffering and weakness to lower themselves? Why in the world would anyone do that? And the answer is found in 2 Corinthians 7.1. He says it's because we have promises. I want you to catch this. If you checked out on me, check back in. These promises that we walk by and that we live by and that we bank our life on are huge. See, in Hebrews 12, 2, we learn this, that Jesus, for this, this reality that he was looking at, is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, it says he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because now he is seated at the right hand in the throne of God. But Paul also makes sure that we understand this in 1 Corinthians. He understands that one day, now just think about this, one day in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, every person will stand before this God. Every last one. 
And he says to stand before him as one that comes to this throne with any kind of a self-made life of self-sufficiency, of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, of trying to create your own honor, of doing anything in that kind of way, you will stand absolutely naked. You will be the king without clothes when you stand before God that one day. Oh, but those that walk this path, (laughs) he says, don't you dare lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. To walk this life at that moment, to not stand in front of him and clothed in anything that, but Jesus Christ that day, you will not regret it. Right now, it is light, momentary affliction. But one day, it will be eternal weight of glory. Paul had his sights set on that time. He lived in this world and chose to be a temple and dove into the lives of the lost. He dove into the lives of those that were hurting. He dove into the lives of the marginalized. He dove into the life of the rich. He dove into the life of the poor. He dove out there with other Christians to be this temple, to be these ambassadors. And he experienced shame and he experienced brutal beatings. He experienced everything that the Corinthians says is so stupid. But I promise you, because Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy, he says boldly, that the day that he stands before Jesus, he will not regret it. Anything that you give up in this life will be nothing compared to that day. He was laser-sighted on the finish. On one level, this is why I'm so excited to go through this book. I'm so excited because I I know that I need to have my vision readjusted to what's really important in this life. But I'll be honest with you, in a lot of ways, I am completely uneasy. See, to go through this book, a guy named C.K. Barrett wrote, writing 2 Corinthians must have come near to breaking Paul, and a church that's prepared to read it with him and understand it may find itself broken too. Now, so often people talk about this idea of brokenness. They throw it around about being broken, and we hear people use it in different ways. So what exactly is brokenness? John Piper put it this way, and I love this. A Christian is not a person who believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. Satan believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. A Christian is a person who has died with Christ, whose stiff neck has been broken, whose brazen forehead has been shattered, whose stony heart has been crushed, whose pride has been slain, and whose life is now mastered by Jesus Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Not a bad definition. And my hope is, is that we begin to take this journey over this next six months is that we will realize with Paul that as we go in and we start to understand it and we jump off that bus and we begin to get our hands dirty in this letter called 2 Corinthians, that we're going to learn something so powerful that I don't care if you're the youngest person here and you're a high schooler wondering, how in the world am I going to enter into my high school? I feel so weak. I feel so unable to do that. And you're going to learn this powerful statement, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
The mom that doesn't know what to do with her kiddos. You're going to learn in this letter that my strength is made powerful in weakness. The man that's struggling right now through sin, whether it is pride or sexual sin, or maybe it's addiction, no matter what it is, you go into this book and you're honest with yourself and you allow the spirit of God to break you, or even two, maybe God just breaks you unwillingly, you will learn this powerful statement that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The person that now is trying to figure out what to do with their job or just has lost their job or whatever might come their way, you're going to learn this powerful statement, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The person right now that's sitting there wondering what to do with their retirement, you're going to learn something powerful. My power is made perfect in weakness. And when we sit on our deathbed wondering what in the world are we going to do, we don't have to imagine away the afterlife. We don't have to pretend like it's not there. We will learn even in that weakest moment as we're dying and drawing our last breath, the most powerful thing that happens to people in that moment is this reality. They learn that even in that dark moment where death closes in, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. You honestly dive into this letter with me. And I believe we will be broken. But I think you all know this. Any time that you've ever been broken, you've never regretted the other side. I gave you a short tour. We went through the book of 2 Corinthians. And next week, we're going to get off the bus. Next week, we're going to start to realize that God works through brokenness not despite it. I think the other thing we're going to learn is he doesn't work around our brokenness. He works through it. I think what we're going to learn is that Paul's cruciform way of life was the path that Jesus walked and God used to display Christ's resurrection power through the Holy Spirit in Paul, and he beckons us to follow his example. And so church, I ask it first on this level. Do you believe brokenness is a good thing? Do you believe that if you come into this ready to be honest with yourself and to realize they are us and we are them, that that brokenness that you walk through for the next few months, you won't regret it? And the last thing is this. Christian, those of you that know Jesus and follow Jesus, honestly now, do you believe the greatest thing you could ever hear as you pass from this life to the next is well done, good and faithful servant? I promise you, there are no better words to hear in your entire life. Are you ready for the journey? Because I think it's going to be a great one for us. Amen? All right. Jesus, would you please now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, I know we're all ready to leave, and I know we're going to be jumping up, and I know we're going to go to our cars, and we're going to drive, and we're going to eat lunch, and we're going to get caught up in life. I know all those things are coming. I know I'm going to experience it. But Father, would you just for this moment, please, stir in our hearts to the power of your Holy Spirit to want to enter into brokenness. Not because we're masochistic, not because somehow we love pain awkwardly, but Father, because we believe that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces perfection, and perfection produces hope.
Father, help us to believe that. I beg you, help us to long for it. In your precious name we pray. Amen.